it this week. Hey team, welcome back to the show. Today I'm joined once again by my man Brandon DeCruz. Brandon, fill us in. How has your week been going? Man, uh, everything is doing well on my end. Um, honestly, we've been really consistent with these podcasts. I know the last one hasn't went out yet, but I'm sure by the time this one gets out, the previous one has been out. So, you know, we've been back on our weekly podcast grind. So everything has been pretty much, you know, nothing major has changed since last week. Everything has been status quo. Training is going really well. I know that we have actually a question about what our next update in mm-hmm. terms of our phases, what we will go be going into. So I'll leave any updates in terms of alluding to that for, for that portion of the podcast. But honestly, everything has been going well on my end. Clients are doing great. We're coming up to the spring, you know, the latter portion of the spring where it finally looks like spring out in the yeah. Northeast. So I'm, I'm blessed for that. And I'm really looking forward to a, another productive season in terms of having clients, you know, getting them progress and really seeing them transform and stuff. And, and I've really gotten, you know, I had mentioned to you either on air or off air, I left my coaching roster. This was a challenge from a good mm-hmm. friend of mine, Jeff Black. He said, listen, for, for one time in your coaching career, just leave your roster open for the entire month. And I'm really thankful that I took that advice and I took on the challenge because I've onboarded a ton of new clients, but not only just the amount of clients, but it's just been, I've had really great experiences. I've been able to work with, you know, start working with individuals that I have yet to have experience working with. I've gotten pros, you know, former, you know, competitive athletes that were professionals, some that were amateurs. And then I've gotten just like, you know, soccer moms and, and people all across the spectrum. And always what I'm trying to do from a coaching perspective is just sharpen up my skills. You know, like even prior to this podcast, like we had a wide ranging conversation about blood work and about these analysis and this, that, and the other. And I'm fortunate that I could speak on a lot of these topics because I've been confronted with these either situations or issues or challenges or obstacles. And um, that is something I see a lot of people in our industry that they shy away from. They have one right. prototypical client that they go for a client avatar and they don't push themselves from a mental perspective. Yes. Like someone's taking on someone I'm, I'm never saying or never implying or suggesting that we take someone outside of our scope of what our abilities are. If someone has an eating disorder, obviously I'm not a clinician, so I'm not going to be able to work with that. If you have a clinical pathological issue. However, a lot of times I see, and I, I consult with so many coaches on a weekly basis. I still do, you know, a, a high frequency of consults one-on-one. Now, a lot of times it comes back to a lot of coaches have imposter syndrome, which I'm, you know, you and I have spoken about in depth in the past, and it's something we've both felt, but really the only way to get out of that is to prove to yourself, you know, that you have the capabilities, or if you don't have the knowledge on something, you go dig it and you let your curiosity really uh, drive you forward. And and it's funny, there's a quote that um, it's actually by Alex Hormizzi. Um, which or Hormozzi, he uh, he has this this company called Gym Launch. He, he does stuff mm-hmm. in the gym scene. But I work with a lot of gym owners, and uh, a couple of years ago, he was doing a seminar actually at one of of my clients' uh, gyms. And I remember he he made a statement, and he said that you don't be it's something to the effect of you don't become confident by shouting affirmations in the mirror, but by having a stack of undeniable proof that you are who you say you are, and you do that through your your actions. And essentially, his his whole point was outwork your self doubt. And right. really, that's an ideology that I've always used within coaching. I've always challenged myself. Um, and that is something that I continue to do. And it, it's really fruitful. I'll, I'll tell you both from an educational perspective, but then also from an impact perspective, because I'm able to help people get through issues that other coaches haven't been able to. But also, I'm, I get a ton of fulfillment in that. So it's a mutually beneficial relationship. Like I'm helping people progress, whether it be with their physique, with their relationship with food, with their lab markers and their health and, and different capacities of their life. But also like seeing that progress, that feeds back into me and makes me want to keep driving forward. So that's a really big intrinsic motivator and driver for myself. And it's it's a blessing to be able to, to do this as a career. Oh, absolutely, man. And I couldn't agree more. I, I do. There's 
a very fine line there as well where there are definitely situations where like hey we like someone will talk to on the phone and it's like we just need to refer you onwards Mm -hmm. Uh, and i'm always trying to figure out where that line is at with like hey pushing ourselves to grow and continue learning but also like i want to make sure we're not doing you a disservice right Mm -hmm. so if this is like clearly something where i don't feel like i have the best tools to manage this um it's again just like a fine line that i'm always kind of trying to figure out where the balance there is but within that um similarly i think that it is so easy for newer coaches especially this is something that i see quite frequently and even today i was talking to a couple of coaches about like just the um well i need to like take another course or another certification and then like after that that's when i'm gonna start like taking on clients so that's when i'm gonna start working with people and it's like yo we've gone through like five courses at this point uh we've been like collecting the information for years there just comes a time where you're not going to feel confident in it until you actually start working with people and there's so much value to that like working with someone and knowing like man i am going to do everything i possibly can to get this person the best possible result and like that it's just drives you so much to just grow and i think that's like there's so much value in that also again i think it's a fine line that like I'm not just saying like you have no idea what the hell you're doing like just <laughs> i don't think either of us are in support of that either Absolutely. but there are definitely going to be situations like that where it is uh and that's like we as a team we're talking about that as well where like the most difficult client situations is easy to look at it as like oh my gosh like this is so challenging and like but it's really like those are the things that push you to grow the most and like we should be thankful for those situations and like those client situations that come up because if that wasn't the case, we would never grow and get better as coaches, right? We would just stay stagnant. So um, a perspective I always try to take in that regard. And it, with our conversations as well, since we we pull back from three podcasts a week, two podcasts a week, so these are going to be a little bit more disjointed, unfortunately. But um, yeah, let's go ahead and get into what our next phases are going to look like to kind of take place of that weekly update. So fill us in for you, like what do the next couple of phases within your own training and nutrition look like? Yeah. So I know that we've done just recently, we've done pretty in-depth episodes or updates essentially on our own training. So we've went through just a few weeks ago, we did something on how I'm do- utilizing BFR training, how we're implementing length and over or length and parcels within your training. That's something I also utilize myself. And, um, you know, within the training, that's going to stay pretty consistent for myself, but really, um, you know, when it comes down to training, this really has been the most progressive mesocycle I've had in months. And it's just, it was just this week that I've started to see some decrements in my training performance, um, which is definitely from the amount of fatigue that I've accumulated over the course of this mesocycle. So I'm thinking when I project out and now mind you, just like I always tell you, this is a reactive, you know, how I coach is reactively. I do the same thing with myself. And so, you know, despite me knowing myself better than anyone else, generally what I, I, I'm feeling at the current moment, and this is me being as objective as possible, you know, I actually send myself my own check-ins with my head cut off so I can look at it just like a client. I want to be as objective as possible, but I'm, when I'm looking at my markers, like whether it be uh, my subjective feelings in terms of pump, disruption, soreness, or it be objective markers like my resting heart rate, my sleep quality, and things of that sort, I really think that, you know, when I'm looking at all the data objectively, I'm looking at it and I'm really analyzing it, you know, in succession in com- and also in comparison to my previous weeks, I probably have about a week or two left the runway of productive training before I'll need to take a deload. Um, especially as I had mentioned this to you a few weeks back, but the reason I started utilizing BFR training was I was getting a lot of uh, elbow issues in terms of joints and, and nickels yeah. and things of that sort. And I'm 
I tend to get that towards the end of a mesocycle, especially my knees. I've had a reconstructive knee surgery um, in my right knee. I've, I've torn up my ACL, LCL, MCL from a, a sports injury. And so anytime that I start feeling, and it's not anytime, but generally towards the latter portion, when I know I it's, it's almost time to deload, I'm consecutively waking up with joint issues, whether it's rain or shine, you know, it's, it's warm or cold. It doesn't matter. It, it's kind of like a wear and tear type of issue from progressive loading, you know, increasing the volume and also, you know, going for progressive overload in multiple aspects, whether it be reps per, per week or reps per set per week, or it's even try, just trying to increase the load on the bar essentially. And so I'm starting to get a little bit more of the joint issues. I'm also, you know, noticing that my sleep quality has dropped. And that's actually like the number one indice. I, I actually see decrements in my my sleep. And I'm very consistent with sleep, with a very dialed in sleep routine. I track my sleep on a nightly basis. Uh, I have these same exact routines in terms of morning and wake routines, or, you know, um, in terms of sleep and wake routines. And so when I start seeing decrements where I'm getting less sleep efficiency, less sleep quality, and I'm in bed for the same amount of time, but I'm starting to see my resting heart rates elevating, my HRV is lowering, and then also my sleep efficiency, meaning the amount of time I'm actually actively in you know a sleep state, um, is going down despite being in bed the same amount of time. I start noticing that the the writing's on the wall essentially. So right. you know that's something I'm starting to experience. So probably within a week or two, I'll have to pull back from that. But besides that, um, we had gotten this questions in terms of like, what are we doing next? I had gotten this question like you know, what is your, cause we had, you know, I speak a lot about uh, nutritional periodization. I, I've done it on my show. We did it in last week's episode, but when it really comes down to it, I've been thinking about what I want to do in terms of my next goal specific phase as every summer over the last decade, honestly, I've done a fat loss phase. So that was, I've done it, whether I'm doing photo shoots. So that's how it initially started 10 years, you know, 10 years ago, uh, summer 2013, I was heavily engaged in photo shoots. Summer 2014, I started competing and every summer for five more years, I competed during the summer. So that was my season for competitions. And then I just kept with that. So even though I haven't competed since the summer of 2019, I've still dieted down every single year to do, you know, get ready for photo shoots. And that's exactly what I did last summer. And I was looking, I actually looked this over because I really like looking at things. I put everything up on a calendar and I really try to backtrack things in terms of kind of working backwards in terms of my goals and, and backcasting essentially. And so what I did was I looked at when I finished my last diet, which was the end of September. So I'm a little bit ahead of you in terms of if you remember when you finished your diet was about the third week of October. I was the last week of September. So at this point, I've been in surplus for over eight months. And I sat down this past week to decide whether I was going to go back into a fat loss phase this summer as it's quickly approaching, or I was going to do a mini cut. And I've decided to go with the latter. Um, and the reason for that is because as I'd mentioned in the last couple of episodes, I've really gotten into such a good and productive rhythm with, you know, my training that I don't want to go into a deficit for, you know, 12 or 16 weeks and not be able to continue progressing my training for that, you know, amount of time. And, you know, the reason I say that is a lot of people in a fat loss phase, they could still make progress. And I would never say that they can't within their training, but really when it comes down to it, the level of leanness that I get to and the amount, the, the conditioning I push for and also how long I've been training it's really not conducive to go right. to those lengths and really try to progress training. And it's not realistic. Like this is where we have to sit back. And sometimes, you know, I have conversations with very advanced clients. I've had it with you where we have to be extremely realistic and reasonable. We want to shoot for the stars, but we have to realize that sometimes, you know, we can't progress everything. We can't have everything at the same time. You know what I mean? And so when I really looked at it, you know, I'm really in a good swing of things within my training. I'm really having productive, progressive sessions. I'm really 
that's a fulfilling process for me in and of itself. And I know that really when it comes down to an actual fat loss phase for myself, it's very difficult for me to hit any PRs or any real progressions, like tangible progressions on movements Mm -hmm. past the first month or so of being in deficit. So instead, what I've decided to do in terms of my next phase is I'm going to do a five to six week mini cut, not only to drop some body fat, but more so to improve my appetite as Honestly, I haven't had an appetite in months. I generally don't speak about this because I know that many people aren't on the other area of the yeah. spectrum. So a lot of times I speak to audiences or I speak to my clients and they're dealing with, you know, hunger and things of that sort. And I deal with that too, because I have an extremely adaptive metabolism. So we've, we've spoken about this and I've done many episodes on um, adaptive metabolisms as well as metabolic adaptation and things of that sort. And when I share my own experiences, you know, a lot of people are shocked because I really have to push my calories sky high to gain, but then they have to come down extremely low. So, you know, most contest preps I've done have been at the end of a prep, you know, 1700 to 1800 calories. I'm a 200 pound male. You know what I mean? That's, that's pretty damn low. And then in, in terms of a building phase right now, I'm about 41, 4200 calories per day. And so I'm just at the point where I don't want to eat anymore. And really when it comes down to it, I know that I can't continue pushing down food in a linear fashion unless I pull back and in order to do so, I'm going to utilize a mini cut as essentially a slingshot um, to be able to stoke my appetite, restore my appetite, my hunger signaling, um, so that then once I transition out of that, I'm able to continue building for the latter half of summer. So really when it comes down to it, you and I, and I know we're going to discuss this after, you and I are in a very similar position as we're both eating a ton of food at this point. So, and we're both sick of food. And so, you know, really the goal for both myself and you, yeah, I'm going to be doing a similar approach with you, a little bit different in terms of your goals, as well as how things will get periodized within the course of the year, especially with leading up to your wedding. But really what we're going to be doing and what we're going to be utilizing a mini cut forward is to potentiate further muscle growth in our next building phases. And another aspect of this, so I don't have a timeline like you do. So I literally, I could have done a fat loss phase, but really I sat down and I, I really was thinking about it this past week. And I also made the decision to mini cut rather than to do a full on fat loss phase to, you know, to essentially get shredded because I'm the type of person I'm going to push myself for progression. So anytime I enter a fat loss phase, it's not even, it doesn't have anything to do with social media. Sometimes people will ask me that. I have my own standard of excellence right. that I expect myself to hit. And I don't expect that I get to contest prep shredded anymore because that isn't my goal. However, I do push myself each and every fat loss phase to the the edge and to the limits of, of my own personal abilities at that phase in life. So last summer, I just started you know, going full-time online coaching. Obviously, I had a, a much bigger roster than I had ever had. And I was in a very transitionary phase of my life, but I pushed myself extremely hard during that fat loss phase. And I got it you know, very lean, did many folks photo shoots, you know, got a uh, couple publications and things of that sort. But I was also, you know, we always talk about this and I think a big or integral part of coaching is leading from the front. And I, I have found myself lately having very similar conversations with client after client about how they don't need to constantly be aiming to get shredded when their goal is either to gain muscle or to restore their health. And mm-hmm. although I'm in a much different situation than many of my clients are, um, I know that they're working through similar things. So for instance, I have, you know, I'll give you an example. I have a competitive client. She's an IFBB figure pro and very competitive. And she was someone that I have a great friendship with. Initially, she had been a sponsored athlete for a supplement company I worked for years ago. And then she recently came to me after her, her last prep and we were having a conversation and it's really hard to disassociate yourself. This is the first year that she won't be competing for, I believe the last four or five years. And she wants to do a cut. 
And I really, I had to have a really like heart to heart talk with her this past week that the expectations of this cut, we're going to do a mini cut just to clean things up, just to improve body composition, restore, um, you know, appetite and things of that sort, and also to improve some health markers. But I had to like lay it out on the line to her and be like, listen, I understand that you have a very high standard in that you've set for yourself, but the conditioning that you've gotten to get stage lean, to get stage ready is not something that A, we should be expecting, nor B, am I going to push you to do because we've been working through some health you know, uh, issues the last six months or so because of the fact that she was in a prep last year from January until October when I took over and I put her into a recovery phase. And so really when it came down to it, I constantly have these conversations. And a lot of times I have like like kind of like recovering chronic dieters essentially. Right. And then I had these conversations, like, you know, we go through this periodization scheme and essentially I put them into whether it be a health phase or a recovery, you know, diet phase. And then we get into a building phase and we do it for an extended period of time. And we're not going to run that forever. But then when it comes to losing some body fat, they expect to like go from, you know, restoring their health markers to getting shredded and really, you know, we have to realize that if we continue doing the same things that we've done previously that have landed us in a bad spot, for instance, with certain females, they've they've suffered from hypothalamic amenorrhea and things of that sort, you know, due to relative energy deficiency, I can't bring, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to bring you back to that state. And also right. with that being said, we have to lay things out on the line. So I have to be very objective. And I just lately, because summer's coming up, because everyone wants to get lean for summer, I've had to have conversation after conversation. So really when it comes down to it, you know, I feel the need to to show them and lead them from the front and show them that not every diet has to end with our leanest physique. So, you know, because that isn't realistic, nor is it healthy. And so I'm going to do it myself. And so, you know, I'm not saying I'm the sacrificial lamb out here, but I'm, I'm just, you know, trying to be a good leader in the fact that every year I've, I've gotten pretty much shredded. And, um, I realize that that isn't necessary. And just like I tell clients, I'm going to tell myself, and once we get to the six week point, I'm pulling it out and we're going back to eating. So, you know, that is kind of what my next phase of, of um, my periodization scheme looks like. And so I will do, you know, I'll probably have about one to two weeks more of this, this current mesocycle. I'll deload, then I'll go into a mini cut. Um, I'll run that for five to six weeks and then I'll go right back to building. And it will be an extended period of time that I'm in a building phase. So it's going to be a little bit different than yours that you'll hit on next. But, um, you know, that is, that's the plan. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that is once you've been to that level of lean, it is a very hard thing to let go of. And a lot of people struggle with that for a very long time. We've talked about this before. It forever changes what you see as lean. And that can be a very difficult thing. But again, especially if you've gotten close to stage lean, it's also so important to understand that that is not a healthy place for your body to be. And if it's there was, especially if there was like, hey, I had to intentionally gain body fat for a reason, mm -hmm. like going back to that place, I think it's also easy to look at it as like, okay, well, my health is in a good place now, right? Like, maybe you spent six months in a health phase focusing on restoring that. And it's not to say like you can never lose body fat again or anything like that, but understand again, like going back to that place again is probably going to yield some of those similar issues. So it's, but it, it can, again, it can be a very hard thing to let go of. And I think like going through a fat loss phase and knowing like, Hey, I've been leaner before that can be a challenging thing. But I also, I think it's important. And that's, I almost feel like as coaches, I know that's something that I really struggled with. Like after the first time I got extremely lean was, letting go of that and that realization that like in like 2019 for me that was a big struggle and like that realization that it's like hey i talk to everyone about the importance of periodization i can't like be here like well fuck my abs are going away and like i'm not gonna look as good on social media and, like that's mean i'm not practicing what i'm preaching if that's how i'm living so i think i think it's a valuable insight so Absolutely. so you go on yours my man yeah so for my end i mean <laughs> it's pretty similar what 
Um, we decided to push last week. I know we were thinking that we're going to pull back, potentially deload this week. I had a much better week this week, of course, than last week. And we talked through that a little bit on the podcast as well. But um, our conversation around this last week was very helpful. Really just worked through, like, for me, a question that, like, our conversation there kind of brought up in my own head. I was just kind of reevaluating things. It was like, do I feel like shit because I need to, I actually need to take a break? Or do I just need to hold myself to a higher standard? And I think that's a, like a, I think that's a valuable thing to consider. I've been like looking at that, looking at things from that perspective in so many areas. And I don't know. <laughs> I think that like you can, there's so much talk about like hustle culture and the negativity that it brings and whatnot. But at the same time, I think that like, I'm not like saying grind yourself into the ground and sometimes like doing the hard thing for some people, like, as you mentioned, sometimes the hard thing that you need to do is like, be okay with hey, I'm going to prioritize my sleep more, right? Like it doesn't have to be like holding yourself to a higher standard means running yourself into the ground more. It might again mean like I'm doing a better job managing stress. And like, for me, that's kind of what it came down to where it was like, I identified so many areas. Cause I know I mentioned it, we talked about it on the last one. Like I was thinking about, Hey, maybe it might just be a time for, for a maintenance phase. But then when working through that, it was like so many areas where it was like, okay, well, I feel like all my training sessions are rushed because I just want to get back to work. Um, but there's so much, so many areas where I can see like I'm wasting so much time on social media. Like I could stop like watching so much Netflix with Katie at night and get to bed earlier and shit like that to where now it's like I've blocked out all my training sessions for the next, the foreseeable future. So I know there's not going to be like, oh shit, I have to finish up the session quick so I can go hop on a call and like just downloaded an app to where like every during like my, my morning times when I'm training for my morning routine and into my evenings, just social media, Gmail, everything is blocked. So I don't have an option except for like, I just have to be more efficient with those things. Lots of little things like that came up to where like my last week was so much more productive. And then similarly from a food perspective, just like the mindset of, is it really that hard? Like, does it actually take that much more time or am I just making this a way bigger deal in my head than it is? Working through all that for me was very helpful to where I'm excited for, so I'm getting a bit ahead of myself, but I'm excited for our next building phase because I do think it will be more productive than this last one was. I think this was a productive phase, but I definitely think there's a lot more that I can get out of this next one. So, and that's for me as well. I feel like, like, again, really reflecting on like my last four or five years, fat loss has always been something that I will say after my first photo shoot, like fat loss for me is easier. I think like doing a fat loss phase, like I don't miss during that, but in a building phase, for whatever reason, I think it's, it's been easier for me to rationalize. Well, like I'm still doing this pretty well, but I feel like the standard hasn't been as high. And I think for me as a leader to so many other people, again, like there's a fine line, but I think personally, like I have a responsibility to keep getting better in the way I execute. If I'm expecting like our clients, our team, everyone else to kind of do the same. So it was cool to really work through that. And I feel really good about like what our next building phase is going to look like. But um, as of now, we're planning to push training for one more week. And as you said, it's always pretty reactive. So who knows, may have another week after that. Uh, I de- definitely felt better in training this week. Still like can tell I've been pushing for a while. Um, my biceps and my chest have been very sore most every day. But um, 
After that, our plan is, I think, deload, mini cut for what, four or five weeks? And yeah, so really how I'm going to give you, you know, obviously you and I have discussed this, but I'll give the audience a little bit more backdrop onto this. So essentially how I run, you know, training with Jeremiah and actually with all my clients is that I do a a reactive approach to deloading. So it's really based on both their subjective and their objective metrics and how I see them trending as well as the decrements that I see within them. So initially, you know, I'll forecast things and I'll say, you know, you and I had this conversation. So I said, Jeremiah, based on your feedback, and this was two weeks ago, I said, I I believe you have about another week in you, but we will, you know, it's always tentative. It's never going to be set and forget. It's not like I'm saying, listen, um, I'm going to already put this into your your program. I've I've included these lengthened partials. And then next week you're automatically going to deload. It's going to be subject to change because that is coaching. I I can't predict as, as well as I've gotten to know your body. I, I don't try to act like I'm smarter than I am. And I think a lot of times with coaching, they almost, you know, a lot of coaches look at this almost like an algorithm because it makes it easier. If I'm to tell you, listen, after every single four weeks, you're going to go into a one deal week deload. It's neat. It's organized. And it's really easy from a coaching perspective because you already have these sheets drawn up and you already know what the next you know adjustment is going to be. But I really like doing it on a week to week basis because so many things could have changed. Say that I did a, a paradigm. Say I did a four to one paradigm. And on week three, someone loses their parent. You know, am I going to say, no, you got to push training for the next week because we have a four to one paradigm and it aligns, you know, with our mesocycle? Absolutely not. And so just like with that, sometimes we have more left on the table. There's more gains to be taken. And so we're more progress essentially. And so within this week, because of the conversation that we had last week, the mindset shift that you had made, a lot of your, your metrics and a lot of your biofeedback looked improved as compared to last week. So we not only, you know, it was starting to crater down a little bit, but Mm -hmm. then it it came back up. So in my mind, you have at least another week left. And so we pushed that out. And I explained this within your check-in. I said, listen, although I had initially forecasted that we'd be going to a deload and then a mini cut, I think that we should really push, you know, just in terms of it's even just for the reinforcement because we have to do hard things. And like a lot of times within our, our evidence-based community, and this isn't a shot at anyone, but a lot of times we're trying to look for like the minimum effective dose and, mm-hmm. or like the smartest training program, the optimal. But within that, a lot of times, sometimes like that kind of blurs the line between not training hard or not pushing ourselves because, you know, a lot of times it's like if someone's doing a, a ton of volume and let's say they're actually doing a ton of productive volume, it's almost like people within the evidence-based scene will criticize that person. Oh, they're doing 30 sets per week. Like that, that goes against the meta-analysis. And it's like, listen, if that's what that person needs to do in order, this is an end of one experiment. So if that's what that person needs to do to continue seeing progress, I'm all for it. And so, yes. We have research, but that reports on averages. Coaching is individualized. It's working with clients one-on-one. So you had, in in my opinion, as well as looking objectively and subjectively, you had another week left in you. So I'm, I'm going to push you this week. And this is going to be something that's that we will be able to, this is data that I'm going to collect first and foremost. We're going to be able to look back at this at your next building phase after we go through this deload and this mini cut and be able to just really see what was the limit at, at as to the end of your your building phase mesocycle. And so within this, most likely training will will be extended one more week. Next week, we will deload because you are showing signs of, you know, decreasing in performance, losing a rep here and there. Um, Although honestly, your videos look great this week. So you still had some, you know, in the tank, at least for this upcoming week. And so, you know, I'm going to push you towards that. And so, and that's another thing. It's like, as a coach, especially with someone that's experienced like yourself or an advanced client, like my biggest, you know, or some of my biggest calls is sitting down and looking at your check and looking at your videos and really thinking to myself and taking time to critically think, 
is it time to pull or is it time to push? And and that's a really big call. It's not always about pushing and it's not always about pulling back. And and that is a, a big judgment call on my end. And also it's about being an objective um, person in your corner. So this week I push you forward and then we'll pull back. We'll deload. We'll go into a mini cut, which I have projected at four weeks, really within your mini cut. We're literally, literally looking to get in, get out and really restore appetite because that is the biggest, your, your body uh, composition is still in a good place. And we also know that later on down the road, we're going to have a little bit longer of a fat loss phase to get you ready for your wedding and to drop off the the amount of body fat and the weight that you need to, to be able to get into your, your suit. And so how it looks right now and how I have it projected out is essentially we'll go into a deload most likely next week. We'll do a four-week mini cut. Then we have about a 12. We, we have a buffer actually in terms of how long we can build for as well as how long we could uh, cut for prior to your wedding. So that's going to, I don't want to say a game time decision, but in the middle of the building phase, we will do a reanalysis. I'll do a reanalysis. And then also this is a collaborative effort. So every time that we make a decision, this is as a team, and this is really an important part of coaching. This isn't about a dictatorship. It isn't like I ever tell you, listen, you have to do this. Like when we discuss these things, there's options on the table. Like, listen, you know, these are the two things. This is what I think is more optimal. But if this aligns, you know, option A is what I think is more optimal for your goals and what I'm looking at from an objective perspective. But I'm going to put option B on the table because if this aligns more with where your headspace is at from a psychological perspective, if this is better for you, then we can go with that. And so there's always options on the table. So we'll look at right now, I have it programmed in at a minimum of 12 weeks of building before we go into a fat loss phase. But say that you stay especially lean within that building phase, we might be able to project that out a little bit further and do, do a smaller uh, cut prior to your wedding. Or you might, you know, get, you know, you might get into that. a mood where you're like, dude, I want to, I want to get shredded for the wedding. <laughs> Katie said she wants me shredded. You know, and, and I know that's most likely not the case. But say that you did that. You you did come to me with that. Then we'll adjust and we'll go from there. Yeah. Katie's told me many times she likes me better when I'm like 230. So um, I don't think that's going to be the that's case. That's true love. Uh, yeah, she doesn't care at all. Uh, but anyways, yeah, that's something that's been in our, in this building phase. I think that every time I thought like, oh, we're for sure going to deload, you've said we have at least one more week. And I've, 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 I've appreciated that because I think like it's easy to look at coaching and some, yes, like the, the strategies and the methods, um, the principles rather, <laughs> whatever, however you want to frame that. Those are an important part of it. But I think it's also, again, like part of our role as coaches is oftentimes to push people further than they have before. And again, like that's still a collaboration, but it's an important part of it. And that's something that I've really appreciated with our work in the building phase. And I, it's also interesting because I feel like in our fat loss phase, a lot of it was like you pulling me back when I wouldn't have pulled back. And here it's been a lot more like you're pushing me more when I wouldn't have pushed more on my own, which again, is so much of the value of having a coach. Um, Yeah. I don't, I don't think I'll want to get peeled for the wedding. I, I don't know when our honeymoon is. Maybe then. I think we're going to be in Egypt. So I'm not, I'm honestly not sure what that's going to entail, but who knows? But, but yeah, that's, that's as far as we have projected out as of now. But I'm excited. I'm excited to get back into some building ex- again, especially like the last week or week and some change. I've had a big mindset shift in that regard. So I'm really excited to see what that looks like. Anything else to add there before we move on? No, I think we're, we've recapped it pretty nicely. Cool. All right. What are the most common training mistakes you see people making in the gym that limits their ability to see progress? So I'll kick this one off. I think first and foremost, just not considering proximity to failure is such a big mistake. So many people make where it's so, because we know that to actually stimulate muscle growth, we're going to have to take the tissue that we're trying to grow relatively close to failure. And I know this is debated like 
typically it's thought like five reps or less shy of failure is going to be stimulative. I typically, I personally like to aim for like two to three. I really like when we're getting up to five, five RIR, I'm still pretty skeptical. And I think that five RIR is just something that's pretty hard for most people to gauge. Um, so I, I don't, I can't think of a situation where I've programmed more than three RIR outside of like very, very niche things for, especially for more than a couple of days. But um, I think that again, like focusing on, okay, so my rep target was 10 to 12. I hit 12 reps. Cool. I just stopped. And it's like so many form videos, especially when clients are just starting, they'll see like, yo, we had like 10 reps in the tank here still. It's like, well, I hit, I had the rep target, right? And it's, it's okay for us to keep going until we do hit that RIR target. And then we know we need to add more weight this next set or even like people coming from a background where maybe their sets are based on time, right? So I do this for 30 seconds, then I move on to the next thing. Um, that's going to be a, that's a very big, that's one thing that's going to be very important. Um, so just making sure that we are stopping because we're truly close, close to failure and also making sure that like, if the goal is muscle growth, that again, that tissue that we're trying to train is the limiting factor. So I think this kind of ties into things like, Hey, are you resting long enough between sets? For example, are you actually allowing your cardiovascular system to recover? Are you allowing that systemic fatigue? to reduce enough to where we can actually push hard enough and get a stimulative set, right? If it's again, we're taking like 20, 30 seconds rest, or we're doing stuff like I'm jump roping or we're doing high knees or whatever between sets. So our cardio system is the limiting factor rather than like your quads. If you're doing a set of hack squats, then again, that's not going to be very productive training. And I think even just being married to exercises, I know for me for the longest time, like I thought it would be great to be able to, I still think like the idea of just like, training in my garage with just like barbells and just getting super jacked and having a super strong back squat would be super cool. But an application for me, the back squat is just a terrible movement. Um, and I was going to say, dude, long femurs. I don't think you have great ankle mobility and um, you don't, you know, short torso. you know what I mean? Like when we really look at the anthropometrics, like I'll tell you for me, back squat, it's out. It's yeah. a movement that I was, I was powerful in years ago when I was, you know, playing, uh, you know, football and, and I was engaged in college sports, but it is something that is not conducive at all. I'm hip. I'm a hip dominant squatter. So yeah. it's like, unless you're built like a Chinese weightlifter and you have, you know, short femurs, a long torso, and you're really able to get in that hole and you get full knee flexion within that. And you have great ankle mobility. I don't find, you know, the barbell back squat to be a hypertrophy exercise, a great overall exercise right. nonetheless. But uh, really when it comes down to like exercise selection, like if you can get something stable where you're braced and you're just mm -hmm. able to really target that tissue, like a hack squat, like a pendulum squat, you get into full knee flexion. You could, you know, utilize a heel lift, um, you know, elevate your heels essentially and get, you know, kind of compensate for your lack of ankle mobility. I think that's going to be much more conducive from a hypertrophy perspective. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there are so many movements like that. And it's not to say that any are good or bad, but just what's the goal. And I think it is very easy to get married to exercises that it's like, I see everybody doing barbell deadlifts, right? Or this person got jacked from barbell deadlifts, but I constantly hurt my back or I've spent the last three years trying to learn how to back squat. And then eventually I'm going to get to this point where I can grow my quads when it's like, yo, we could just do a hack squat or a leg press or whatever it may be. Um, not keeping a logbook, I think is another common mistake that holds people back. Uh, I know I'm talking through this with new clients all the time because we're very, we're sticklers about like, Hey, I want to see your logbook and I want to be able to review your logbook and look at how you're actually progressing. And that's often a new thing to so many people, because especially like once you pass the beginner stage, I think no matter what, like you or I could go into the gym and we could lift the same weight for months on end for the same amount of reps and it would always feel hard, right? 
And it's not like we're going to always progress the logbook every week. I don't think that's a realistic expectation for hardly anyone. Um, Depending on our progression method, like if we're going from three to two RIR, we expect progress. But especially like when I'm at zero RIR for multiple weeks, I'm not going to expect everything to constantly be progressing. But having a good idea of our milestones, making sure that we are pushing for progress over time and we're getting stronger over time is an important variable. And then I also think form videos, actually recording yourself training is an important thing that's overlooked as well. Even like, I know we've talked about this where I've been sending you a lot more form videos lately than I did for a while because it was like, I'm good. I know I'm, I feel like I'm pushing pretty hard and your feedback has still been like, no man, you got quite a bit more there still. Um, so it's like, damn, I guess I do need to be more on top of this as well, just like I tell clients to be. So I would say those are a couple of the biggest things I see. Anything else from your end? Yeah, you know, really when it comes down to it, like this question is really uh it is really, you know, geared more towards hypertrophy training. And I think we really have to realize that there's a difference between working out and a difference between training. And so if we're training for hypertrophy, we need to realize that it's it's meant to be challenging and it needs to feel difficult. And so, you know really the goal is to provide our bodies with a progressive stimulus. And that's really what I see lacking in the gym. Like there are many like little mistakes that I see within, it's not even in like the X and O's of people's programs. Like when I look around a gym, it's more about like the execution. I mean that on multiple facets. So the first one that you alluded to, which is honestly the number one that I see um, in terms of common gym mistakes is not putting in enough effort or an insufficient relative intensity. So, you know, most individuals, if you look around the gym, they're just not pushing themselves hard enough. And so, when it comes down to it, a lot of times, if I do receive videos, or even when I just have client, you know, conversations regarding training, you know, I always try to make it see, you know, you know, what I try to get across to my clients is look around the gym and then look at what you're doing and really be observant and realize that all your sets for an exercise shouldn't look like a warm up. But if you are to look at the average person in the gym, most of their their lifts or most of their sets look exactly like warm ups, and you know, it, it comes down to what I really like to look at is is rep speed. And although each repetition should look the same in terms of execution, they shouldn't be done with the same speed because if your first rep and your last rep are moving at the exact same velocity, you're not close to failure. And so that's an indication that you're not anywhere near a proximity to failure and uh, you're not training at a relative or a sufficient intensity threshold that is needed to an actually actually induce some adaptations. Um, another thing that I see, and this actually comes more from a client perspective that I've worked through this with a lot of clients. And I know we actually have a question that's going to go over uh, reps in reserve, like how to get more accurate at it. But I, I really do see a lot of people, like a common mistake is people underestimating uh, reps in reserve. And this comes back from, you know, seeing client videos, having conversations, but also like people in the gym telling me that they're at their zero reps in reserve week. And, and I see them train and I'm, you know, looking at their training and they're not, t- they don't look anywhere close to failure. And in the last few years, you know, I, I really think that's this has, this topic has become more spoken about in terms of reps and reserve, like the pros and the cons. And when we look at the research has really teased out that we don't need to train to failure each and every set. However, you know, we need to be relatively close to failure to ensure our training is challenging enough to cause an adaptation. So when I actually look through the literature, I know some people say, and I know, you know, there's some very intelligent people in the space that do proclaim that you could be five reps in reserve. There's a study, um, I believe it's Santanello. It's from like 2020, where they actually looked at like, 
anywhere between one to three reps in reserve and then zero reps in reserve. And they found very similar hypertrophy. But really, when I look at the, the actual data on training to failure versus non-failure, I'm really not seeing a, lot, a large body of data that shows that over, say, four reps in reserve, you can get the same. So say five reps in reserve and over can get similar hypertrophic adaptations as zero reps in reserve. So I think there's a fine line that we have to draw. I realize that it's not like an on and off switch in terms of like, you're either at zero reps in reserve and you get hypertrophy or you're at four right. reps in reserve and it's completely shut off. But I think it's it's a gradient essentially. And really I like being within, you know, especially within like that three to four reps in reserve and under. And so I really think that not only do we have to aim for that, but I think it's also really important. And this is a conversation I really find myself having often is to realize that three reps in reserve training. So say your first week of a mesocycle starts at three reps in reserve. That is still really challenging training, despite the fact that it doesn't induce as much fatigue as all out failure training. And often when I hear people speak about their first week of the mesocycle, or even the concept of training at three reps in reserve, sometimes, you know, failure proponents, people that train to failure quite often, they'll say, you know, three reps in reserve, that's easy training. Really, it's not like, you know, when we, we think about three reps in reserve training, it should be fairly challenging. We sh- should still be seeing some rep drop off. You should see some slowing of velocity. Like I'll tell you when I'm at my three reps in reserve week, it's still intense training. It's still me pushing myself. It's just not going to the point of all out failure where I'm literally unable to get the, you know, say a dumbbell or, or barbell off my chest. And so, you know, this is something that I really try to get across my clients because it's not that the first week is easy. It is easier in comparison, you know, first week of a mesocycle. It's not that the first week of a mesocycle is easy. It's easier in comparison to what your last week will be. And we will slowly titrate and build up towards that. But I think that really not pushing yourself hard enough in the gym and training to a close enough proximity of failure is one of the most common things that I see. And then there's some other things that I advise others out there to pay attention to that these are common mistakes that I see. Um, The first one I would say is range of motion of the movements they're doing. So you know, we know that in the literature, we see longer, you know, longer range or the lengthening portion of the rep is a more hypertrophic portion, essentially, of the rep. But I really think that most people could benefit from, you know, utilizing a larger or fuller range of motion as this will yield more total tension on the target muscle. And so within that, I'm, I'm going to advise that people, you know, utilize movements that stress that str- that lengthen position and actually get into a stretch position, which means getting to the bottom of presses rather than, you know, doing partials at the top. Like this is a common mistake that I see. Like people will do partials, but like at the lo- the wrong end of like the, the, the range essentially, or, you know, getting to the bottom of the hack squat or leg press. Um, another mistake that I see, and this is something that I would advise people avoid, or, you know, maybe the opposite of that, I would advise people to, you know, aim to standardize your technique and rep execution, because every rep should look similar to one another in terms of the technique you use, the depth achieved, or the range of motion you go through. And we want to get a proficient technique down and then use that same exercise setup and technique on a weekly basis to ensure that the rep and load progressions that we're seeing are actually an indication of progress. Because another mistake that I see in the gym is that people will be getting like a PR, whether it be in rep progression or load progression, but they're utilizing a completely different form than what they've utilized in weeks prior. So it's like, did you really actually make tangible progress from like a muscular adaptation perspective? Or did you just, you know, kind of finagle yourself or, you know, use your leverages to get a weight up that you actually have not adapted to being able to utilize, you know, correctly. Um, And really when it comes down to it, in terms of rep execution, the only thing that should change is the speed of your rep. 
as the more fatigued that we become, the slower that rep's going to become. And so these are like just different things that um, I would suggest or mistakes that I see in the gym and, and just some ways to overcome them. Because I think being more intentional in our training and then also a little bit more of a critical thinker within our training can really have a large benefit. And, you know, we're going to discuss this in the next um, uh, question in terms of reps in reserve accuracy. And a lot of times I'm, I'm you know, there are ways and we'll go through some some methods and things that I utilize with my own clients as to how to get more accurate with reps and reserve. But really when it comes down to it, if you are someone, you're out there, you're a podcast listener, you don't work with Jeremiah or myself, and you're not utilizing reps and reserve, just realize that training needs to be hard. It needs to be challenging. This is, There are no easy sets. There may be easier in comparison, but no training that is being utilized to induce an adaptation unless you are a rank beginner can be easy and continue to make progress. It could be easier in comparison, but that's only due to the fact that we've built up such an adaptive capacity that something is easier now than it was years ago. And so like that, that, you know, cliche quote, like, things don't get easier. We just get stronger or we just get better. That really applies within strength training. We get better at, you know, executing movements or recovery, or, you know, even if we think about like the, we go into a new mesocycle structure with new movements. Initially we're getting more soreness, but once that repeated bout effect, you know, kicks in, now we're getting less soreness. So we're, we're pushing ourselves maybe as much or more than we were in the beginning, but we're getting less, um, essentially residual fatigue as well as soreness and some of these indices of fatigue building up but it's not because training got easier. We got better. We got more adapted to that stimulus. And so whenever you're going into training, I really think that the first thing we should really focus on before we get into the X's and O's of what rep scheme should I use? What tempo should I use? Or, you know, what, um, you know, volume threshold should I aim for? How many sets per week? Like you need to be intentional with the effort of your training because you need to ensure that there's a sufficient stimulus, you know, tension stimulus on the target musculature that you're looking to grow. Oh, absolutely. Um, I think with uh, that kind of aligns with building phases as well. This is something that's come up a lot more, I would say, in the last year where we talk about building phases and their importance a lot and newer clients will start and like, I'm ready for a building phase. And it's, hey, when we look at your training with where you're at, it's like, we're probably better served. Let's just hang out at maintenance for a while. And we need to really master like the intensity with which you're training and also improve execution before we're going to be in a productive place to build. Because I think it's also easy to just like for people to think the calories are the thing that's really driving that growth where it is the training and that stimulus is what's driving the growth. Just those calories are going to be slightly more permissive to that. And then on the RIR and execution topic, something that I find myself reiterating quite a bit with clients is also like, it's not bullseye or bust, right? Where it's, very much like with execution it's something we're both still constantly trying to master that and improve that right so um and similarly with rir where like yes pushing yourself hard is important but um it's okay if like we don't have this mastered right out of the gate it's not like that mm -hmm. session was a complete waste and i do think that sometimes with execution especially um that's one where personally I prioritize, I really like to try to push that idea because what I found is clients can almost get paralyzed with like, well, I don't have this mastered yet. So like all my sets are stopping at like, I just continue continually am dropping weight and dropping weight and dropping weight. And this is even more specific to exercise. I think of one client with like his lat pull down where I was reviewing his form videos and he's like, man, I think I need to drop all of my, um, all of my, my weight for all of my back movements this coming week because I felt like my form was getting a little sloppy and it's like, man, we got like a little bit of like, yes, your torso moved a little bit more on like the last rep of that pull down, but on the same token, I don't want us to be in this mindset of like, we're constantly just dropping and like 
going so slow and really like focusing on putting our head in the muscle and squeezing to the point where we're actually just once again, not getting an effective training stimulus. So I do think like there's, there is a line there that we need to consider as well. Absolutely. You know, I really can agree with that. And also I think that we really got to almost walk a tight rope between like good execution as well as Mm -hmm. enough effort within a set. Because like you mentioned about getting paralyzed, you know, I often had these conversations where clients will sometimes send me, you know, a post where someone, you know, is claiming this is the optimal movement for the, the iliac lat or it's, you know, thoracic lat or whatever, whatever, you know, insertion, you know, subdivision of a body part right now it's the lats, but we can go deltoids, we can go chest you know, clavicular fibers, whatever, you know, kind of subdivision of a muscle you want to go to, but it's great to be able to utilize some funner movements that have some novelty that you're engaged in. However, if you're not executing that correctly, or if you need to, it takes you so long to get that very specific nuanced execution down to the point that you're nowhere close to enough effort. You're not putting enough tension, you know, even if you really are, you're getting a little bit more of a biased tension on a specific, you know, group of muscle fibers or a, a specific musculature. If you're not going to enough intensity of effort, you're not going to induce adaptation regardless of how perfect your form is. So we really got to walk a tightrope. I'm, I'm very much, you know, in, in alignment with having good execution, but don't make good the enemy or perfection the enemy of good or something you know uh, along the lines of that where you get what you're saying yeah yeah where it has to be perfect or it's it's not worthwhile or it you know it's not optimal we have to realize we have to do away with that just like there is no there's no optimal for everyone so one movement may fit someone's you know anthropometrics and their setup and you know their limb lengths and their levers and things of that sort and uh, the same one may not fit someone else the same way with execution. We have to realize that there is no perfection and there's only optimal for you as an N of one, you as an individual. And we have to continually aim towards that, but realize that it's not about getting perfection. It's about progression. Yeah, absolutely. I would say kind of the progression I typically work through there with the clients is like, Hey, is execution adequate where, and it's not like these things have to be mutually exclusive, but first and foremost, before I'm pushing someone to like really push the intensity, I want to make sure we're not going to hurt you. And of course, like we're going to experience tension is the most tension in the target muscle. Then really focusing on let's master the intensity perspective next. And then from there, we're like, we're continuing to fine tune things more and more. And we can, again, work on both of those, those things at the same time. Those are kind of my priorities. Do you have one, do you have time for one more question? Yeah, let's do this last one. Cool. Okay. What are some methods to improve RIR accuracy? All right. So there are several techniques that I use with clients of mine to have them get better and more accurate at estimating the reps and reserve target. And the reason that, honestly, I wanted to open up on this this topic, other than the fact that we got the question, is because this is something that, like you mentioned, is a great uh, way to put it, is people get paralyzed by some of these details, some of these nuances. And, and really, because of how popular or how prevalent reps and reserve has gotten as a progression model or as a, a method within training, I find that this is a pretty oftenly asked question. So the first thing that I suggest or I have clients look for is a is a drop in rep velocity or speed. So the first and last rep of your set should look similar in terms of the repetition execution, but should look significantly different in terms of the repetition speed that you utilize because we generally will see rep speed getting gradually slower and slower as we get closer to failure. So 
when it really comes down to it, if you're using, utilizing a reps and reserve model and say that you're at zero reps and reserve weeks, so you're trying to go to true failure, if you're not losing any velocity on your reps towards the end of a set, it's most likely an indicator that you're you're far from failure and you're nowhere near the actual rep target. Generally, I see within three to four reps in reserve of myself and with clients, we're starting to see a slowdown in reps. And there is a progression towards that slowdown. So for instance, right. Jeremiah, there's been a couple of times that you sent me videos and we're right at like zero or one reps in reserve, but you have, you know, it's slowing down, but you have a little bit left and really your reps in comparison, rep one to rep say 12, it's drastically different in terms of speed. But I think you really like, I, I personally, when I go zero reps in reserve, I'm almost at a grinding halt. Like that rep is painfully slow especially, you know, sometimes you look back on a video and in your mind, you think it's much longer than it is. Oh, and yeah. then when you, when you look back on the video, it'll show you, you're a little bit quicker than you thought you were, but there are certain times that it literally looks like I'm moving like a snail. And mm -hmm. I'm not saying everyone has to go to that, that extent. However, you should see a, a drastic drop off in terms of your rep speed. And we even see that within like, think about like power lifters. Like if you ever watch like, you know, really high level power lifters lift something, they're lifting one rep, but their rep is God awfully slow. And that's right. because they're putting in as uh, as high of a force, as much of attention as possible, but it's really hard to move fast weight or heavy weights fast. You know what I mean? Right. Like they're putting as much velocity into a rep as possible, but they have a slow rep velocity. Another way that I like to utilize or another strategy I like to utilize to um, improve RRR accuracy is going to failure. You know, periodically you should be going to failure because the best way to know what your zero reps in reserve is, or even your three reps in reserve is, or any target in between those two is to occasionally go to failure. And what I like clients to do, or what I've done myself many of times is I like doing an AMRAP on my working weight of an exercise to see what my true failure is. So I take the, the limiters off and, and it's no holds bar. I'll go in and it'll be on a specific day. And I'm looking at, you know, generally I do this on key indicating lifts, which are harder to gauge. So say, you know, a, a dumbbell chest press, a hack squat, something of that sort, where I really do want to see what is my true limit. And so what I do with that is I'll do an MRAP set. And I usually do it once per mesocycle just to recalibrate essentially right. my, my reps and reserve target. And what I'll do with that, say, for instance, I do 110 pound dumbbells on flat dumbbell press for 10 reps. And that's my true zero reps in reserve. I could not move it off my chest and, and complete another full repetition. Well, if I'm going to that next mesocycle and I'm starting at three reps in reserve, well, I'm just going to back calculate my reps in reserve from that. So I know right. that my zero reps in reserve was 10 repetitions with 110 pounds. So my three reps in reserve will be seven you know, repetitions at 110 pounds. And so you know, this is these are some of the strategies that I've utilized, but there's a couple other things that are just like anecdotal things that I've seen working with clients, whether it be in the gym back in the day, or even like when I have clients that I go and train with. And um, these are kind of things that I look for in terms of like proximity to failure more. So like um, a lot of times, if you really look at it, and I'll say this about you in particular, Jeremiah, and I, I know I can, you know, open up about this, but your face is not going to, you shouldn't have a straight face and your facial expression should be looking quite, um, I guess, like, like you're going through effort. Like if I have a terrible anytime, lifting face. <laughs> absolutely. And the thing is when you're at lower or you're at higher reps and reserve, you're not straining as much. However, you should look ugly, honestly, in the gym. Like I know that my zero reps and reserve week, I look hideous during yeah. those sets. Like I don't care. I'm, my body's moving. My face is, is, you know, all scrunched up. Like that is true exertion. So really whenever I get a video, to be honest, <laughs> man, I don't mean to laugh, but whenever Dude, I get I, a video and I have someone that has like, like kind of like the model face that I make when I do photo shoots, I'm like, yeah. 
you had more in you. There's no way that you were able to first keep your mouth closed and with no, you know, mouth breathing, unless you're Brian Borsim and you have like the, the strip, the, the mouth tape on you. Um, there's no way you were able to not breathe through your mouth and also to keep such like a, a composed face, like almost like you're going to take a photo. And so, you know, really when it comes down to it, that's like the last thing I'm not saying you could exactly gauge three reps in reserve by this face or zero reps in reserve by that face. But this is just like something anecdotal besides like the AMRAP set. And besides, you know, looking at velocity loss or, or rep speed loss that I see when trying to gauge reps in reserve accuracy. And it's something you can even take a video of yourself. And like, if you see yourself straining and the rep is moving ungodly slow and you can't get another repetition, you know, another clean repetition, you're most likely at zero reps in reserve. It is really good to test ourselves. So there are, you know, I know that Within the last few years, this has become a lot more uh, prominent to utilize reps and reserve. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a great model, especially for fatigue management. We don't need to take every single set to failure. Uh, that's just going to accumulate excess fatigue. And for certain people within a certain volume threshold, they'll be able to utilize that. But a lot of times it's going to cap their, their weekly volume in terms of their ability to recover adequately from that not only intensity, but also if they were to jack up volume and intensity, they're really not going to be able to recover adequately enough to not only, you know, feel good in the gym, but also to adapt and actually grow muscle as a result. But when it comes down to it, like, you know, you really should be pushing yourself at least, I, I like doing it at least one to two weeks per mesocycle where I'm really taking it to the house. I'm, I'm pushing my limits both physically and mentally, and I'm really seeing what I have so that I not only know what my limits are, like you're never going to know what three reps in reserve is unless you take it to the house and you really test your limits. But also I find that those last few weeks of mesocycle really allow me to recalibrate my perception of effort going forward as well. You know, not only subjectively, but also objectively, because I'm able to look at my log. I always log my lifts. I mean, I have logs going back 13, 14 years at this point, And I'm really able to see not only the progression, but like, what is the perception of effort at this? And, and a lot of times, you know, at this point of advancement, I don't always make progressions in the zero reps and reserve week, but there's a lot of times that I'll look over the course of like a block of training where maybe within, you know, one to two mesocycles apart, I'm seeing that my three reps and reserve week, I'm gaining reps. So the, yeah. the training that used to be three reps in reserve, you know, previously in, in previous mesocycles is now much easier. And if I stayed training at that level, I would be five reps in reserve rather. And that's still a form of progression. Yeah. And I think all that is a good way to say, like taking lifting, taking training videos is an, an important variable of this. Once again, I know when I record those form videos and watch them back, man, I look like such a dumbass. I feel like it's gotten way worse since I've been in training in my garage for so long. I don't have mirrors and I, I take those sometimes and I'm like, I'm going to put uh, like with the intention to post it. And I'm like, damn, I need to like do another set and like at least try to chill for the first half of that. Um, so, but I, I, I fully agree, man. And, um, we use the AMRAP sets quite frequently as well, especially if I'm like looking over someone's log books and I think that they're sandbagging it. I like, we use again, like the three, two, we progress RAR across uh, the mental cycle for some clients who I'm not as confident are going to be great at pushing close to failure. Um, I will do like, Hey, weekly, maybe across sets. We're going to do something like two, one to two, one. And there as well, I'll plug that in pretty frequently. And for in situations like this, I'm much more likely to, to program like that AMRAP set on a more stable movement so even like be like a hip thrust a leg curl a leg extension even like a dumbbell bench press where like hey if we fail on this it's not a big deal and just like hey use the same weight as you did for the last set take it to the house and record a video of this set and you'll so often see like okay 
for the first two sets, you did 10, 10, and then for the same weight, you did 20 reps on this last set. So were those, were those first two sets really like two RIR and then one to two? And then this final one was zero or were those like eight RIR and nine RIR? Um, what about rep drop off between sets? Do you think that we should be seeing, like if we're doing three sets of eight to 10 and we're aiming for the same RIR target, do you think we should see, this is something I hear uh, pretty mixed takes on. Do you think we should be seeing like, hey, we're seeing drop off from one set to the next or should we be able to match reps and weight across all sets? That's really going to come down to the individual. Gen- I'll, I'll speak in generalities and then I'll break it down into a little bit more detailed of, a, of an answer because of my experience working with different clientele. Um, generally, yes. If you are, say, say you're staying, you're going zero reps in reserve. And on the first set, you took it to the house. You took it to failure. We can't expect that you're going to be able, if you truly took it to zero, and I'm just using zero reps in reserve because it's the most objective example that I can give. We can't expect that you're, even if you are to rest three minutes or a elongated period of time where we would think that some residual fatigue or acute fatigue would dissipate, um, metabolites would drop down and things of that sort. We're not going to be able to continually, um, I guess, do the same, repeat the same performance again and again, because that wouldn't be true failure. But even the same thing can be said about three reps in reserve set. You should see minor rep drop-offs. And really what I see is it really comes down to almost like both the physiological state and then the psychological state of the client. So what I will say is that I generally notice with my female clients, they have much less of a rep drop-off. And when it comes down to it, that's really what we would, um, you know, we would consider or we would categorize as work capacity. Their work capacity just generally is higher. They're able to recover better, not only in between workouts, but in between sets, they're able to, you know, a lot of times they're working off of aerobic metabolism. We see that women utilize more fat for energy. They're utilizing intramuscular triglycerides during training. And that's, you know, their ability to replenish ATP is, is most likely much quicker than men's are. And so we see that. And especially when I had females that I had them utilize longer rest intervals, because with a lot of my females that come to me, they've been used to like these boot camp classes, these, you know, circuit training, you know, workouts and things of that sort. So they're used to like 30 or 60 seconds and they're either doing plyos in between, you know, or they're going from one machine to another, to another. And so when I utilize a two to three minute rest interval, their recovery capacity is on another level. So they're generally able until we get them really getting more accurate with their reps in reserve, you know, it's, it's no longer can they use the same weight for the same amount of reps that they used previously when they were utilizing 30 to 60 second rest intervals. So I do see a discrepancy between males yeah. and females, and that could even be down to like muscle fiber um, architecture in terms of, or muscle fiber typing where females tend to have a little bit more slower twitch fibers than males do. And right. so the recovery capacity, their oxidative capacity is a little bit higher. Um, they're more fatigue resistant. We see that in the literature, we see the recovery capacity is better. And so I see that with females, but generally with most people, if you were actually at the target RIR, whether it be three or it be zero or anywhere in between, we should see some rep drop off. What I will say is that I do have certain male clients, and I generally will see this with males, that some of them, they're pushing past the reps and reserve target. And I see that because their rep drop off is astronomical. So say that we're we're doing three sets at three reps and reserve between a rep target of eight to 12 reps. And you know, the first set, they get 12 reps, but then the next two sets, it's like six reps and three, three reps. It's, it's a, a large indicator that it's not only their 
lack of work capacity, this could be due to like, if I have a powerlifting client that comes to me and they want to become a bodybuilder, sometimes they just have really shit aerobic conditioning. So they can't recover in between sets. So even three minutes, they're gas. If it's not that, which is generally not the case, because I work with a lot of more like bodybuilder types, uh, it's generally that they push themselves. They said that they were three reps in reserve at 12 reps, but they really took it to the house. And now we're seeing a subsequent rep drop off because they went much closer to failure than they estimated or than they, um, are, are leading off. And so that's where I would either titrate back the, the amount of load that they're using within that first sec. So we could have more, you know, if we're seeing 12, 10, eight, we're, you know, at an eight to 12 rep target and I'm seeing two, three reps per set drop off all good and well, but I'm, when I'm seeing drastic, if I'm seeing it cut in half and you're essentially getting out of the rep zone, you know, by your second or third set out of three sets, there really shouldn't have been that much fatigue induced unless you took a failure in that first set. Okay. Absolutely. I think that's, that's super insightful. And that's, I know for me, one of the, and again, like a lot much more commonly with women, I'll see, like, we'll be able to match reps across sets, but especially for like a lot of the guys I work with and especially on lower body training where it's like, Hey, we did the same weight for the same reps for all three of these sets of split squats. That's kind of surprising. <laughs> and then absolutely we're all introduced like an AMRAP set. Cool, man. Uh, I have to pee so bad. So let's go ahead and wrap it up here before we let you go. Um, anything new going on you want to plug? No, everything is is going well. Standard uh, status quo on, on my end. We should be having some events coming up, but I, I do need to get the details ironed out with uh, with Jeff and, and part of our team. Um, so I will keep you guys posted on that. But as always, guys, feel free to hit us up with questions. We appreciate the support as always. And uh, my man, have a great weekend. You as well, man. We'll catch you guys soon.